0: I imagine that uh, Christians in Ukraine are singing that line, all the wreaths of empire rest upon his brow, just a little differently than we are singing it. Um, I hope you're praying for Ukraine. I hope you're praying for the Christians there that have stayed behind to take care of people. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> I don't know if any of the rest of you read David French uh, or listen to David French, but this morning his commentary included a, a Twitter link to a Ukrainian family meeting at a home church around their table singing the song this week, He Will Hold Me Fast, which is a song that we sing quite a lot around here. And I imagine they too are singing that differently than we would sing it today. But I hope you are praying for them. I found myself even uh, praying for Vladimir Putin, although I am mostly praying the precatory songs. (laughs) Google what that is and then you can hate me later, but it's basically God asking evil to be done away with and by doing away with the evil doer, which is a biblical way to pray. Doesn't fall easy on our ears a lot of times. But it is the way that the psalmists often prayed. Not not praying for violence, but pr- praying for justice. The fully integrated human body, heart, soul, mind, and strength has from the beginning been central to God's story in the world. When God made men and women in his image to reflect his glory into the world, he made them physical and corporeal, their bodies as allies in obeying him and reflecting his glory into the nature that he had created. That's our design. In creation, there was just one prohibition, Which, by the way, for uh, any cops or lawyers that don't think that their work actually matters, we have to remember that even in creation, there was a law. (laughs) It was only just one law, but there was law. Adam and Eve were told not to eat from a particular tree, but they, they broke that law, and they took and ate what they were not supposed to eat. Isn't it interesting how the phrase take and eat plays so much into redemptive history? They took and ate in the garden and created much of the mess that we see in the world today. Jesus, when he came, said, take and eat (laughs) would be the remedy. And the first thing that Jesus is going to call us to do in eternity is to take and eat. It's just amazing if you love to eat. that uh, <laughs> Super biblical. In the fall, our body and its inhabitants, though, became disintegrated. Intermittent adversaries in the quest for a truly integrated and flourishing life. That's why the law was given, but we couldn't keep it the centerpiece of redemptive history, then, is the incarnation of Jesus, God literally becoming flesh and living a perfectly sinless life in order to himself fulfill the righteous demands of his law and become our gracious redeemer. The transfiguration of Jesus, then, which we observe today, shows us at least three significant things, teaches us. First, the presence of Moses and Elijah is hugely significant. When he says, listen to him, the father has granted Jesus authority over the law represented by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah, which ironically was his authority anyway, which he was giving to himself. When God said, this is my son whom I love, it is that word agape, which we looked at pretty extensively last week. The kind of love that's almost always used to describe the love that's of and from God. It's the type of love that is gracious and generous and kind, always seeking the good of its object, even if that object is an enemy. It's the love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. So there is no coincidence that that is read today. But most importantly for our time today, it was also a glimpse, a a foretaste for Peter, James, and John of Jesus' fully glorified, and this is crucial, but physical body. He wasn't transfigured into some glowing, ethereal apparition. He never stopped being fully human. The physical body, bodily resurrection of Jesus then is utterly foundational to Christian doctrine and our own hope for eternity. Because Jesus rose from the dead with a physical body, we learn in John 5, 21, Romans 8, 23, and 1 Corinthians 15. Every Christian has the guarantee of his or her own bodily resurrection. And the scriptures are clear that Jesus' body was resurrected. The tomb was empty he was recognizable to those who knew him and he showed himself he showed himself to all his disciples after his resurrection and more than 500 people were eyewitnesses to his earthly post-resurrection presence we learn again in 1 Corinthians 15 which we've just spent the last several weeks reading through as our epistle he makes it plain to his disciples that he has a physical body In Luke Luke 24:39 uh, he says see my hands and my feet that that is it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And after spending 40 days with his disciples, Jesus ascended bodily into heaven, it says in Acts nine. 1 Peter 3.22 tells us that now, today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father of the Father in heaven, still human, but resurrected, glorified. Although he retained his scars, which, which is just mind-bending in its implications. Don't go down that rabbit hole right now. Resurrected, glorified, and imperishable as our bodies will one day be. Jesus will forever be the God-man sacrificed for us. Christ, the creator of the universe, will forever stoop to our level. And it tells us in Revelation 21, 3 and 4 and 22:4 4, that he will be known to us forever in a tangible form that we can see, hear, and touch. And we were made to be like him. Most Christians would probably agree with the colic that we read today that the goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus, to do what he did when the heat was on. But many would also say, I I think, well, that's just kind of an ideal. I mean, in practice, it's not really possible. I mean, to err is human. But that begs the question, why would the heart of the New Testament message be to grow into Christ-likeness if it weren't really possible? Wouldn't that just be a recipe for frustration? But here's the reality. We can become like Christ, but only by doing one thing, by following him in the overall kind of life that he chose for himself. If we truly have faith in Christ, we have to believe that he knew how to live all the time. And we can, through faith and grace, become like him by practicing the kinds of activities he engaged in, by arranging our lives around the habits that he himself cultivated. To give it simpler language, to train as he trained. That's not my word, by the way. Paul told his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, to train yourself for godliness. So how did Jesus train? Well, he practiced things like solitude and silence, prayer, fasting, simple and sacrificial living, Intense study and meditation on God's word and service to others. Practices, you notice, of heart, soul, mind, and strength. Practices that include the body. Practices of a fully integrated life. This is a huge challenge for us today because we've largely fallen prey to the idea that the essence of faith is only an inward thing, partly because we Protestants see a false opposition of grace or works that's caused by a mistaken association of works with merit. But the Apostle James insists that faith without works is dead. Works are integral to our faith. Have you ever tried to cut a piece of paper with only one side of a pair of scissors? Probably not because it doesn't work. It requires both. Faith and works are the same way. But this only makes sense if you understand that grace is not opposed to effort. It is only opposed to earning. I cannot say this too many times. Grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort unequivocally we are saved by grace alone and not because we deserve it not because of what we've done but because of what Jesus did this is the basis of God's acceptance of us but grace does not mean that ample strength and insight will be miraculously infused into our being to be like Christ in a moment of temptation or need when the heat is on it just doesn't work that way, and it, and it really never has. 2,500 years ago, the Greek poet Archilochus, thank you, Kimberly, wrote, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. This, by the way, has been picked up by the Navy SEALs, and I think they would know a few things about training. The the reality is, you see, that, that faith takes works, too. It takes training. And this is the perfect time of year to take that seriously. Let me illustrate it this way. At some point, hopefully soon, Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association will finalize a new collective bargaining agreement. Spring training will commence, And baseball will return because baseball. Spring training and Lent share an important thing in common beyond happening at about the same time of year. It's a time when players ramp up their training so that when the heat is on, they do exactly what needs to be done when it needs to be done as a matter of habit. For thousands of years, disciples of Jesus have focused on the same thing at Lent. Because whether it's effortlessly and habitually turning a double play or obeying everything that Jesus commanded, it takes more than just trying. It requires training. Because we seriously overestimate what we can do solely by trying and grossly underestimate what we can do by training. This is one of the most basic and oldest realities of human life. Successful performance in a moment of crisis rests largely, if not exclusively, on a self wisely and rigorously prepared in the totality of its being, mind and body. This is why Major League Baseball players don't just show up on opening day with their bat and glove, ready to try really, really hard. This isn't just true of specific activities like baseball. It's true of life as a whole. And because Sunday and Monday are absolutely connected, this isn't a truth that we can set aside when it comes to our spiritual life. Reality is reality. It informs all of life. So like the preseason in baseball, Lent is a time when disciples of Jesus pay particular attention to training. Because here's the reality. We will never be like Christ when the heat is on unless we train as he did when it's not. What would Jesus do is purely speculative. What did Jesus do is substantive think about this. Anyone who knows tennis or golf or music or something more in my wheelhouse has tried to land an airplane and walk away knows that improving has a lot to do with muscle memory. You know, by the way, what pilots call a good landing? Anyone you walk away from. But the way that you improve your serve or your swing or or your chops or your roundout and flare it requires training your muscles to perform exactly the same motions again and again and again, practicing tens of thousands of times until they become habitual. Because what does practice make? Yes! <laughs> the force is strong with this one. <laughs> practice does not make perfect as we have always been told. But practice does make habit. What starts out feeling awkward and foreign to your body gets easier and easier and eventually comfortable. Then after enough practice, it actually becomes reflex, meaning you don't have to consciously think about creating the motion. It just happens automatically. This is, I think, one of the reasons that Jesus said, when you give to the poor, don't know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I think he's saying, get so habituated to giving to the poor, that you're doing it reflexively. You're not even thinking about it. I mean, it's true, Keith. Sorry to call you out. But this is what happens at the piano, right? You're not thinking about. I'm not thinking about anything. That's right. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> ah, Same thing playing the guitar. Guitar players aren't thinking about what's happening in their left hand and their right hand simultaneously. They just practiced. Have you ever seen someone quote unquote this is funny because somebody actually is knitting today, mindlessly knit or crochet while they're watching television or in church? (laughs) Every athlete or musician or pilot or knitter, is that what knitters are people that knitter called? knows this basic fact, our bodies are not neutral. They either help us or hinder us. They're either allies or adversaries. And the way an athlete or musician or a pilot performs on the spot when the heat is on is possible only because of exhausting practice, thousands of repetitions that no one else sees. So people who say we can't truly be like Christ turn out to be right in a way. We can't behave when the heat is on as he did if in the rest of our lives we live in the same way everyone else does. The heat is on moments aren't the places where we can, even by the grace of God, redirect unchristlike and ingrained habits towards sudden and glorious Christlikeness. Our efforts to take control at that moment will fail so uniformly and ingloriously that the whole idea of following Jesus will just look ridiculous to the watching world. And by the way, it mostly does. As I mentioned at the beginning, historically Christianity with its roots in Judaism was thought of at its foundation to be embodied. And building on that foundation, there's a great emphasis in scripture on the human body being either an ally or adversary in becoming like Christ, what theologians call sanctification. Your body is not neutral. Romans 6, 12 and 13 says this, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought. brought brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6:20, you were bought with the price, therefore glorify God with your body. And of course, Romans 12:1 tells us that true and proper worship comes in off the offering of what? Our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. See, this embodied view is what led to the practice of Lent, which dates from around the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325. From the church's very first days, the resurrection of Christ was celebrated not only each week on Sunday, the Lord's Day. But also in a special feast of the resurrection, we you know as Easter. Lent is a season of preparation for Easter, and it's focused a, a, a great deal on repentance. Repentance is turning around. Martin Luther held that the Christian life in its totality is a life of repentance beginning when we first commit our lives to Jesus and continuing throughout our lives. We're more and more turning away from sin and self-centeredness and more and more turning toward our Lord. I was listening to a preacher on a podcast a couple of years ago. He was speaking to a bunch of other preachers and he said, do you want to have a church that repents, preach the cross. Preach the cross. Preach the cross. Now, he's only partly right, because what we know is if you want to have a church that repents, you practice repentance. But as you might guess I would say, it's not just spiritual. Again, God's design and creation and the incarnation of Jesus mean there's an integral connection between our bodies and our souls. If you don't believe that, just ask someone who's chronically ill. That's why at the center of Christian worship, God gives us physical signs of spiritual realities the sacraments of baptism and the eucharist that's also why in the pages of scripture and throughout the history of the church we find many physical practices and postures designed to assist us in becoming disciples it's weird when people start coming to an anglican church and people are crossing themselves at certain times in the service there are two reasons for this first of all You know what that means to God, right? Nothing (laughs) means nothing. Just like these clothes that I'm wearing. Nothing. But it does mean something to us. One, it reminds us constantly that we live under the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. And actually, if you do it historically, it's also a pretty serious theological lesson that represents the trinity and this the dual nature of christ which by the way when i bless you that's why i do it this way christ in his dual nature both god and man and the trinity together so it constantly reminds us of the godhead and you know who who god is so lauren will often ask me like when we're on morning prayer or something she'll see me like putting my fingers together before i do a a blessing or something like that. It's because this move is pretty natural to me now, but it's not totally natural. I have to think about it. Anyway, talk about a tangentialization. Are Christians required to observe Lent? Nope. Biblically speaking, no. There are, however, some good reasons for observing this tradition. One, Lent reminds us that our bodies are not neutral. They are either allies or adversaries in following Jesus. I've already said plenty about that. Two, Lent is wise. Just as a baseball player may work at at staying fit year round, but still give special attention to their conditioning during spring training. So there's wisdom in setting aside a few weeks to give special attention to the fitness of the totality of our life in the spirit. Three. Lent honors millennia of practice. Inasmuch as the Holy Spirit has been present throughout church history, guiding and instructing disciples of Jesus, we believe that it is unwise. I believe that it is unwise to disregard history and constantly reinvent the will. We run the risk of foolishness when we casually refuse to walk on well-worn paths. They're well-worn for a reason. Lent begins on Ash Wednesday and lasts through Holy Saturday, the Saturday before Easter day. The last week of Lent is called Holy Week, which includes Maundy Thursday, commemorating the institution of the Eucharist, Good Friday, commemorating the crucifixion of Jesus, and the great vigil of Easter. Together, these three are referred to as the Tritium. Modeled on Jesus' fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, less Lent lasts 40 days, not counting Sundays. Sundays are not included because the Lord's Day is never a fast day, but always a feast day. That's why Lent is 46 days long. A celebration of the resurrection. That's why during Lent, the Lord's Days are always listed as Sundays in Lent, not Sundays of Lent. Historically, Lent has been practiced in four basic ways. One, self-examination. This is central to Lent. We use this time to ask ourselves some hard questions about the state of our soul. If you're married, it's good. Wise to ask your spouse to act as a friend and give you his or her candid evaluation. Or to ask your children, they know you. Or to act a friend, ask a friend to act as a prophet for you. Parents can also use the occasion of Lent working to understand their children's particular struggles and providing them encouragement and support with the emphasis on self-examination. And this is the caveat. With the emphasis on self-examination, however, it is critical to keep our focus on the heart of the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Thank you, Tim Keller. Your self examination should always be centered on this good news. Always keeping in mind that there is nothing, nothing that you can do to make God love you more and nothing that you can do to make God love you less. He can only love you as he does, perfectly. So self-evaluation, second, self-denial. Well, it's also a great time for practices of self-denial, a time to remind ourselves that we do not live by bread alone. Self-denial helps us remember what is so magnificently embodied in the Eucharist, that Jesus is the true bread of life, our true source of strength and sustenance. Jesus said a primary mark of a disciple is self-denial. <laughs> Some common examples would be giving up one meal a day or giving up a particular food. Self-denial, however, doesn't always involve what we eat. Some people may work on other habits, seeking to better use their time, or are fasting from Twitter or ignoring their email after 5 p.m. For families in our dangerously frenetic culture, Lent would be an appropriate time to moderate the endless flow of activities that can degrade our relationships with God and with each other. Self-denial helps us put some things to death in anticipation of resurrection. Three, so self-evaluation, self-denial, three acts of compassion. Lent's a particularly appropriate time to ask God to fill you with compassion for the poor and oppressed and to put this into practice in concrete ways. There are many practical ways in which families can practice compassion during Lent. Use your imagination. Finally, prayer and study. Finally, Lent's a a time for renewing and strengthening our communion with God through regular discipline times of prayer and study of the scriptures. If these have never been a part of your life, or if they once were but you've become have become less so then Lent's an excellent opportunity to begin to renew these life-giving practices by the way real accessible handle to this Uh, we have a group that meets for morning prayer tuesday wednesday thursday and friday morning at eight o'clock online the link is on our website you'd be welcome to join us all of these all of these disciplines that i've mentioned all of these things are addressed by Dallas Willard in just the exceptional book, which is probably my best used book, actually. The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes His Lives, I cannot recommend highly enough that you read this. This in Lent would be a very good time to do it. But in it, he addresses bodily disciplines of abstinence, silence, solitude, fasting, frugality, chastity, Secrecy and sacrifice, as well as disciplines of engagement, study, worship, celebration, service, fellowship, confession, and submission. Because of its limited time frame, Lent is a perfect time to experiment with discipline and find out what works for you. So get creative. One of the Dallas Willards in the book he talks about is he regularly exercises the discipline of not having to have the last word. Most of you know I suffer from hurry sickness Um, and so during Lent I make myself drive in the far right lane on the freeway and get in the longest line at the grocery store just to slow me down a little bit, which is good because I got a speeding ticket this week. (laughs) 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 That was a real downer yesterday when that came in the mail. By the way, that was on my way home from a meeting with our bishop. <laughs> yeah, I've preached way too long, you guys. I'm sorry. Um, just whatever you choose, uh, I hope that you'll join me in getting in shape for the season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.